Last week we looked at how Israel continued, continues to remain despite all those who have been against it and would be coming against it, that God would be preserving them. And we saw that in the same way the promises are there for the church, that God will preserve them no matter what opposition or who rises up against us. They also showed us that they would be receiving the Messiah in his role of the sacrificial lamb. So we pick up here in 13. This is continuing the same word that started in chapter 12. In that day a fountain shall be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for uncleanness. The Amplified reads it this way. In that day there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. Now the NLT, the NET, and the ESV all read that exactly the same, to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. This, the CSV puts it this way, to wash away sin and impurity. So the idea here is it's, it's stated for sin and for uncleanness, but for the purpose of this fountain it is to clean. And that is why it is here. The previous chapter ended with Israel returning to the Lord through the Messiah that they once rejected. It is because they come back to Messiah, because they receive the one that they once rejected, that this fountain is now open to them. They receive the redemptive work of Messiah, and they also receive the cleansing of sin, which is done through this fountain. I thought of this, that basically a fountain is an upside-down shower. And if we want to get clean, we go into the shower, we get cleaned off. Well, the fountain here is just exactly that. It's there to clean for sin and all uncleanness. There are songs about this fountain. Uh, there's probably more than just one. I just pulled out one for you. And you may know this if you are, as uh, uh, you've uh, heard the term before, Baptocostal. I kind of come from that background as well. I was raised Baptist all my years, and then we got into the charismatic Pentecostal area. But there's a song that we learned in our Baptist heritage. There is a river that flows from deep within. There is a fountain that frees the soul from sin. Come to these waters. There is a vast supply. There is a river that never shall run dry. And there's other ones that talk about the fountain as freeing us from sin. There's other places that talk about fountain in other ways. But... You'll see this in probably some other ones as well. Boise has this quote about the fountain. He says, The idea of God being a fountain to his people is found frequently in the Old Testament, but Zechariah's treatment is possibly the richest of all. So now the fountain is available to them to cleanse from sin and uncleanness. All those things can be cleansed away. Couldn't have been before because they did not approach through Messiah the sacrificial lamb. Verse 2. It shall be in that day, says the Lord of hosts, that I will cut off the names of the idols from the land and they shall no longer be remembered. I will also cause the prophets and the unclean spirit to depart from the land. It shall come to pass that if anyone still prophesies, then his father and mother who begot him will say to him, You shall not live because you have spoken lies in the name of the Lord and his father and mother who begot him shall thrust him through when he prophesies. Now, some pretty strong words in here. But idolatry and false prophecy are two of the ways, two of the main ways that Israel had been led away from God before. And so, he's saying that I will cut off the names of the idols. Well, if the names are not remembered, you won't be going back to them anytime soon. He's going to make sure that this cleansing of the fountain is so complete that they will not even remember the names of the idols. And, as far as the false prophets are concerned, there is going to be a different view that people have of them. The prophets will be looked at as evil, and even their own parents, it says, will rise up against them. So those prophets who will not give up their false prophesying, they will probably leave the land. They won't be comfortable there, and they'll probably go because they're not being accepted, and they'll go some other place. But it also says that the spirits behind them will go. I will cause the prophets, verse 2, and the unclean spirit to depart from the land. So the prophets who want to hang on to this false prophesying, they're going to just leave. 
because there's no place for them. No one is welcoming, welcoming them anymore. And the false spirit that is behind them, the unclean spirit as it's called here, they will also go. They will be rid from the land. So false prophetic messages are not just a mistake. They result from a wrong yielding. False prophetic messages are not a mistake. They result from wrong yielding. And these false prophets have yielded to the wrong spirit. Now public opinion will be so strong against these false prophets and the false prophecies that they would utter that even the parents will be wanting to kill them. They're going to be so intolerant of their own sons, possibly daughters, of giving these false messages that they will say, we will kill you. Imagine how unpopular that has to be, that mom and dad want to put them to death for the thing. And that's the strong wording that we get there in verse 3. It shall come to pass that if anyone still prophesies, then his father and mother who begot him will say to him. Now, this isn't just legitimate prophecy. This is false prophecy. So it would have to be identified. But if anyone still wants to go on with the false prophecies, his father and mother who begot him will say to him, you shall not live because you have spoken lies in the name of the Lord. And his father and mother who begot him shall thrust him through when he prophesies. (laughs) Can you imagine that? So they may give him a warning. No more prophecies. No more. You're a false prophet. You're prophesying by the wrong spirit. If you prophesy again, we will kill you. And so if they open their mouth and they begin to do it, it says they take a sword, they take a a knife, whatever it is, and they thrust them through. (laughs) This is the prophecy. This is the word that's coming. This is how cleansed the land will be that those that are still there, they won't tolerate the false prophecy. They'll say there's no way we're going to have this go on. Now these are not false prophets of idols, but those who would falsely speak for God. There's a difference between the false prophets of idols. Elijah came against the false prophets of idols. He came against the prophets of Baal. He came against the prophets of Ashtoreth. But there were also false prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. And we'll look more into that in just a little bit. Verse 4. And it shall be in that day that every prophet will be ashamed of his vision when he prophesies, and they will not wear a robe of coarse hair to deceive. Now this is either meaning that the words that they had given before that were false, that they are ashamed of them, or it means that if they give a word now, that people make them feel so ashamed for giving the false word that they'd rather just run and hide. So it seems to be one of those two things. The only thing I can think of in our modern day that would give us anything similar in this is the way people responded to the Nazis and the people who who um, were Nazis who escaped out of the land and tried to take up a new identity. And when that new identity was found, they were shamed. They were, uh, uh, they were uh, guilty of war crimes. Those things would catch up to them. If they were just people that sympathized with the party, that would catch up to them. But boy, that's a stigma that comes over people. Uh, it's the closest thing I can think of we can compare it to what they're saying here. So that false prophets in Israel would be like we would look at someone from the Nazi party, someone maybe from the concentration camps. Oh, you were one of those? You were, How in the world did you fall into where you would falsely prophesy, falsely speak for the name of God? I can't believe that you're trying to pass this off again. That's not a word from God. And they would so shame them into that, the, as it says here, they will not wear a robe of coarse hair to deceive. They won't wear the garments of a prophet. So a prophet had certain things that they would wear that it kind of identified them as a prophet. saw a little bit of that with, with somebody in uh, modern day. Uh, I don't know where this came from, but I saw this uh, person who was identified as a prophet. And as they came out, they had a, uh, a rod with them. And apparently this was some kind of a special carved, crafted rod. You could tell there was a lot of uh, carvings that were done on this thing. And they carried it out. And the whole time they were prophesying, they were holding this rod. And thinking, man, it's like a divining rod. That's the first thing that came into my mind when I was watching this thing but um, I didn't have a whole lot of respect for the I, I heard the things that were said and said nah that's, that's not jiving with what I what I know to be true 
uh, but the person who was orchestrating the meeting at the time seemed to think that it was. So um, I guess we would differ on that particular thing. But it almost came across like a divining rod. This is something that this identifies me as a prophet. Uh, and there are some people who did carry some things around like that, and maybe they were trying to identify that. But in this day, there was certain clothing that a prophet would wear. And so they would take that particular clothing and they would hide it. It doesn't say that they would get burn it or get rid of it, but that they would hide or they would keep it away. They would not bring it out. They would not wear it anymore. Because to put that on, people would say, oh, wait a minute, are you one of those? And the shame that they would have, they, they couldn't do that anymore. So verse 5, but he will say, I am no prophet. I am a farmer, for a man taught me to keep cattle from my youth. So they're basically saying this, Oh, no, no, I'm not a prophet. No, don't associate me with that. I've been a farmer all my years. Somebody taught me how to do this, and this is what I've been doing. So they don't even want to cop to the thing of having ever having been a prophet. Verse 6, And one will say to him, What are these wounds between your arms? And then he will answer, Those with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. Now, perhaps God drives them out by the shame that they feel. God says, we're going to drive these guys out. Maybe they're driven out because of the shame that is there. Oh, no, I, I, I can't be here. People know what I've done. People know that I've spoken this way. The opinion is not on my side. And maybe that's what drives them out. But whatever it is, it says that they're going to be gone. This part here with the wounds. Some translations have put this that it's a wound be- between their hands and people are trying to take from that that it's another prophetic message about the uh, sacrifice of Jesus Christ because of the wounds on his hands. This is not. This is talking about false prophets. It's not talking about Messiah. Messiah will come in again, but this is not what we're bringing Messiah in. This is talking about the false prophets. If you're wondering, though, what are the wounds, and really between the arms is a better translation here. The wounds between the arms... These are things that they would do, that false prophets would do, is that they would actually uh, have some wounds that they would do. In 1 Kings 18.28, So they cried aloud and cut themselves, as was their custom, with knives and lances until the blood gushed out on them. It says this was their custom. This is something that they would do. And so people would look at these folks and they're saying, I am not, or nor have I ever been a prophet. I don't have the outfit of a prophet. I don't have the occupation of a prophet. I'm a farmer. I'm this and whatever whatever it might be. And they say, well, hold on a minute. What about those wounds between your arms? And that would probably be more in the chest area. What about those wounds that are there? And they would say, well, I didn't get them this way. I got them at the house of my friends. You know, we had a little brawl that came out. And, uh, well, just some things happened. And that's how these wounds came. And so they would try and come up with an excuse for it. So this is what this prophecy is saying. No one's going to say, no, these are wounds that I got because I was sacrificing to my, my God. So this was such a common practice among the false prophets to do this, that the wounds would be on them and the people could see them. Those wounds tell me that you were a false prophet. And they would try and come up with another excuse for those things. But they're eventually going to see, I can't hide from this. I need to get out of here and probably leave the country because of how they feel. Jeremiah 48, 35 through 37 reads this, Moreover, says the Lord, I will cause to cease in Moab the one who offers sacrifices in the high places and burns incense to his gods. Therefore my heart shall wail like flutes for Moab and like flutes. My heart shall wail for the men of ker Therefore the riches they have acquired have perished. For every head shall be bald and every beard clipped on all the hands shall be cuts, and on the loins sackcloth. So another place where wounds are associated with this being a false prophet. Verse 7. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who is my companion, says the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. Then I will turn my hand against the little ones. Now that verse may seem very familiar to you. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd against the man who is my companion. The New Living Translation says the man who is my partner. The CSV says against the man who stands next to me. 
So the previous verse did not talk about Messiah, but this one sure does. You can't get away from this. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd. That's Jesus. Against a man who is my companion. This is God saying, the one who is my partner, the one who is the one who stands next to me, this is the one that we're talking about. Against, O, o sword, come against my shepherd, come against the man who is my partner. So the Lord is calling for the sword to come against his companion, to come against his partner, to come against his shepherd, Messiah. So this is where Messiah comes in. He says, strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Now you all know Jesus quoted this verse. This is talking about the killing of Jesus. And when Jesus quotes this, it surely confirms this as a prophetic message. In Matthew 26, 31, Then Jesus said to them, All of you will be made to stumble because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. You have to go over to Mark's Gospel in 14 and 50 to see that they all forsook him and fled. Matthew doesn't cover that part. But Mark does put that in. And that is what happened. They struck the shepherd and the sheep scattered. Now notice the difference here. In Zechariah it reads this way. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Jesus quotes the verse as... I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. He quotes it as God saying, I will strike the shepherd. But Zacharias says, strike the shepherd. Now the reason that Jesus probably says it this way and quotes it this way is because the previous part of the verse, awake O shepherd against my, awake O sword against my shepherd, against the man who is my companion. So he is calling for the sword to come against his shepherd. And that is probably why Jesus says, I will strike the shepherd. Now the disciples are very likely the symbol of the future scattering of Israel, but you'll see that as soon as Jesus is taken, the, the sheep scatter. The disciples, they all run. They all go. Now some of them begin to wander on back. John, we know, wanders on back. Peter, from a distance, wanders on back. And Zechariah also relates to what Isaiah spoke in 53 and 10. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. So Isaiah also talks about how the Lord was behind this bruising or this striking of the shepherd. So this was God's doing in that he gave the command to strike the shepherd. Now this is important this way. Now put this as a blank in your outline if you want to copy this in. Calvary was not Satan's victory but God's doing. God called for the sword and the sword struck his shepherd. It is not Satan's victory. This was God's doing. God ordained it from before. He spoke it through Isaiah. He spoke it through Zechariah that he was the one who was going to bring the sword. And he did. And just as the disciples all scattered, it is probably prophetically speaking that Israel would all be scattered in the coming years. Verse 8, And it shall come to pass in all the land, says the Lord, that two-thirds in it shall be cut off and die, but one-third shall be left in it. And I will bring the one-third through the fire, where we find them as silver is refined, and test them as gold is tested. They will, they will call on my name, and I will answer them, and I will say, This is my people. And each one will say, The Lord is my God. Now you look at these stats that it gives here. Two-thirds shall be cut off and die. Two-thirds shall be cut off and die. And one-third shall be left in it. Now I was reading one person's uh, thoughts on this. And well, I, I don't know that I quite made complete sense of it yet. I, I thought it was intriguing. They were saying that if you took Israel and divided it amongst two, and I don't know where they got the two from, that's probably one thing that confused me, and made Jesus as the older, he would get a double portion, and the portion that fell to him is the portion that died. But I couldn't find any symbolism in all this. I, I meditated on that for a little while. I was in a fairly reputable um, place, so that's the only reason I, I was reading it a few times through. 
I just couldn't figure out any anything to that. It just seems like it's two thirds and one third. It's just numbers that uh, that came up. But anyway, I thought I'd throw that out if you want to ponder on that or or do anything with that. Because surely, if you divide it amongst two, that'd be a third, and two thirds would go to one. But I just don't see where the second one would be beside Jesus. Uh, so I, I got a little puzzled on that. But anyway, two thirds here are going to be cut off and die. So from those that are in Israel, two-thirds will be cut off and die, and one-third will be left in it. Now this is after the scattering. This is after the verse that talks about the scattering. And I can't tell you for sure on this one. I don't know. Does the two-thirds that get wiped out, does that start from the time that they are scattered, or does that start from the time when they are regathered? If it starts from the time that they are scattered, then we can understand the numbers from the slaughter in Germany, Soviet Union, and other places that the uh, Jewish people came upon because there was huge numbers of them, but there are still huge numbers left. And that could be the two-thirds and one-third that was talked about. Now, most of those people, they were, uh, they may have been God-fearing, but they were not Messiah-serving. If you wonder, well, how can God let all that happen to His people? Well, really, they have rejected what God said was the way to Him so technically, they are not God's people. Because the way to get to the Father is through the Son. And they were coming up with, no, we want to do it this way. And you can say which way you want to do it, but that's not how you do it. You do it the way that God said. So he says he'll bring one-third through the fire and will refine them as silver is refined and test them as gold is tested. Now certainly, in the tribulation, those that believe in Jesus those that hold to the Messiah are going to be tested. There is going to be some great tests to come down upon them because they will be the ones who will not serve Antichrist and His image. And so they will be tested. And in the book of Revelation, we see some of the results of that test. We see the martyrs that are up there in heaven that came from the time of the tribulation. These are, are things that are be going on. So it's hard for us to see the numbers, but in the end... I'm sure that they will play out because this is the way that God said that they would be. Many times prophecies, we can't understand all of it until after it's done and we can look back and say, oh, there's where it is fulfilled. That's how it is brought about. It seems that prophetically it's done that way so that we can't just write the, the future as, and become the, that as history. But the Lord knows what will happen. He can say it in such a way that I can't quite figure it out until after it happens. Oh, that is what that was saying. And that keeps the prophetic nature of it intact. Now, this word is against false prophets. And it's true for Israel. But I also like to think, just like last week, how it affects the church today. Because those in the church today, there are those who allow, permit, or welcome false prophetic messages. And these false prophetic messages are not messages that are of a false god they are presented as being the words of God. Then there are churches who encourage this, who welcome this, and are glad that these things come and treat these words as though they are words from God. So just in, in taking a look at that, I wanted us to go and to look at a particular scripture for which we can see the false words of God compared to the true Word of God. Now in the, in the text here, we see that the power behind false prophecy is an unclean spirit. Here in Zechariah, we're getting a real good picture from how God looks at this false prophecy. Those who prophesy falsely are yielding to this unclean spirit. That's what they're doing. If they're going to prophesy falsely, they're going to yield to this unclean spirit. But they think they are yielding to a spirit of God. That means that they have rejected the Spirit of God in order to accept this unclean spirit. So I ask this question. Why would anyone reject Him the true and true prophetic words? Why would anyone reject the Holy Spirit, the true Spirit of God, and the true prophetic words that He would speak? There's got to be some reasons for it. And so I began to think on these things. Some of them are in Scripture. Some of them are examples we can see there. Uh, and you can write these down if you want to. 
Ask me about them later on. Whichever you want. But true words from God are less abundant than false ones. That's the first reason. True words from God are less abundant than false ones. People that are inclined to give false words are people who want to speak more than God desires to speak. If you're going to do that, then you need to get words that come from somebody else beside God. God doesn't always want to speak. He sometimes, with a very good prophet, has not spoken for a year, year and a half, two years. He'll go for a little while. There's no word. Do you have a word today? No. Don't have a word from... And a true prophet is willing to say, no, I don't have a word. But a person who who uh, wants to have an abundance of words, well, I'm going to go find one. And this is where the yielding to the wrong spirit comes in. So a true words from God are less abundant than false ones. So these folks will, in desiring to prophesy, they love to prophesy more than speak the words of God. That's the thing that that uh, gets them. I want to prophesy more than I want to speak the words of God. And if you want to prophesy so much that you are willing to say other words than the words of God and pass them off as the words of God, you'll be following after an unclean spirit. Here's the second one. False prophets can be more abundant than true ones. Maybe I want to be a prophet, but God hasn't called me to be a prophet. But I want to be a prophet. So I'll just decide that I am a prophet. False prophets can be more abundant than true ones. So it's easier to get in those numbers. What man selects or appoints himself will be more abundant than the kind that God calls. God doesn't call men. Doesn't need to call men. But man many times wants to, to be that way. Brother Hagin used to share with us uh, as one who sat in the office of a prophet, he said, anyone who desires to be a prophet is either crazy or doesn't understand the calling. Because he said, if you understood what the calling was, there's no way you would desire it. And he gave us some examples on that. And I totally, uh, I'm, I'm with them on that. Here's the third reason. True words lift up God and His goodness. True words lift up God and His goodness. Not everybody wants to lift up God and His goodness because that's not always popular. False words can puff up the speaker and or the hearer. People like to speak words that puff themselves up or puff up the hearer. See, if you puff up the hearer, then you become popular. If you say things to people that they want to hear, that they like to hear, that they're looking to hear, you will become popular among the people. That's a way to get popular. If you can say, thus saith the Lord, and you say something to them that they want to hear and that they like, oh, I like this brother so-and-so, I like this sister so-and-so, because they definitely speak the words of God. Because they're words that you want to hear. Or they may speak words that puff themselves up. So that's five. Since those were those are mindful of the flesh, since people who want to be false prophets are mindful of the flesh, they will seek self-honor. And when they can get into a place where they can, by the words of God, find self-honor, they will follow it. All right, here's the here's the next one. True words can contain difficult words to hear. True words can contain difficult words to hear. You get a true word from God and you speak it out, it's going to be hard for people to hear it. And some people don't want to hear it. If people don't want to hear the words that you say, they get mad at you. They throw stones at you. Or other things at you. And we saw that in the Word of God. They don't like what a prophet said, they throw stones. They, they want to burn people. They want to, they want to destroy them. They want to get rid of them. True words can contain difficult words to hear. Jeremiah sure felt the brunt of that. He's always being beat up for the words that he was saying. He finally just said, I'm not going to, not going to say them anymore. But others were martyred for the words that they spoke. True words can contain difficult words to hear. How many times does the word of prophecy have some difficult words to hear? Not all people want to say those, those things. False words seldom come with persecution. 
so if you were going to, if you desired to be a prophet, if you were going to be a true prophet, you'd have to say words that are difficult to hear and that are unpopular and the people get mad at you for it. Or you could say false words that seldom come with any persecution. So what would you say? Well, you see, if I, if I follow after this spirit, people like me. And I become popular with the people. And then people ask me out to their churches. And people put me on TV. I think I like this way better. And so because of the response of people, they're going to tend to go to the way of the unclean spirit and the false word. Because people like to be liked. Few will willingly put themselves in the crossfire. But a true prophet will do that. Here's a big one. Last one and the big one. People get over false words being false faster than true words being true. People get over false words being false faster than true words being true. People don't like it when words come true that they didn't want to come true. They don't like that. You spoke it. You're a prophet of doom. (laughs) They don't like that part. I wrote down some of these things that are false prophecy. Not necessarily false prophecy. These people were not speaking these things by the Spirit of God. I don't think they even passed themselves off as speaking by the Spirit of God. But just so that you can understand how quickly people can get over a false prophecy. My only reason for using these. How quickly did people get over Ted Danson and the oceans dying in the 60s? They got over that pretty quick because they didn't die. I believe he put a time period of 25 years. That would have been somewhere around the uh, uh, mid-80s. And they didn't die in the mid-80s. In fact, they're still alive now. In the 70s, so many publications, including Newsweek, Time, and a few others, had the coming ice age in the 70s. Big headlines. The coming ice age. And for many of those, I believe it was 20 years, the ice age was coming. In the 80s, you may remember this one real well, acid rain. Acid rain's going to destroy everything. It's going to destroy your crops. It's going to destroy our drinking water. I don't know what they probably, I don't know what else they put it on, but acid rain. That was in the 80s. Late 80s, we had the rising of the ocean levels. And that New York City would be underwater and Florida would lose place and islands would disappear. Global warming became late in the 90s and into the 2000s we had global warming. Remember Al Gore, famous prediction, the polar ice caps would be melting and the oceans would be rising. In his, uh, in the speech he gave in 2008, he, of course he capitalized off of that and made millions of dollars off the thing. He even made the movie, The Inconvenient Truth, that people were mandatorily showing in schools and making all these predictions. None of them came true. A uh, guy I used to love to listen to before he passed away, Rush Limbaugh, uh, he was so on target with this about Al Gore. He put, from the time that Al Gore made the prediction, 20 years, whatever, I forget, 10 years, I think it was 10 years, whatever he time. Al Gore made the prediction, this many years, this will happen. He put a timer on his website. If you went to Rush Limbaugh's website, you saw the timer. Al Gore's picture, here's the timer, and it'll be a countdown to when he said all these things would come true. Because he knew it's not coming true. And it didn't. Al Gore just made all kinds of money. And nothing, not a thing that he prophesied would happen. And yet people will still listen to the guy. Not a single word came true. Because people get over false words being false faster than true words being true. Well, as these predictions failed, they were replaced, of course, by global climate change. Which predicted everything from extreme cold and extreme heat to extreme storms or the lack of storms or no snow or the abundance of snow. No matter what happens, it fit the prediction. Whatever happened, it could be extremely cold in January. 
Oh, global climate change. No, every January it gets cold. It could be super hot in July. Oh, it's global climate change. No, in July it gets hot. That's what happens. I always get amazed. They'll say, well, we haven't hit this temperature since 1956. Well, then what happened in 1956 that made the temperature get up that hot? But nobody ever seems to ask that of those people that are making it. Because people will get over false words being false faster than true words being true. So if that's the case, what would you rather be, a false prophet or a true prophet? Now, of course, you would want to be a true prophet. I understand that. But can you see the draw that it would have for, for many people? And it was that way in Israel's time as well, just as it is today, because people are the same. They haven't really changed all that much. So there's pro false prophets now, just like there were false prophets then. And the false prophets now are just as proud of their messages as the false prophets were back then. So let's take a look at 1 Kings 22. This is not an unfamiliar passage to you. We refer back to it many times. But let's just take a look at it from the standpoint of comparing false prophets with the true prophet. Because you're going to see a lot of these similarities. Not just here. You'll see them other places. But this place, this is one chapter where they're all right here. Verse 1. Now three years passed without war between Syria and Israel. And then it came to pass in the third year that Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, went down to visit the king of Israel. And the king of Israel said to his servants, Do you know that Ramoth in Gilead is ours? But we hesitate to take it out of the hand of the king of Syria. So he said to Jehoshaphat, Will you go with me to fight at Ramoth Gilead? Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, I am as you are, my people as your people, my horse, horses as your horses. That's, of course, bad for Jehoshaphat. He should not be joining himself with such an un godly person, but he did. As Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, please inquire for the word of the Lord today. Then the king of Israel gathered the prophets together, about 400 men, and said to them, shall I go against Ramoth Gilead to fight or shall I refrain? So they said, go up for the Lord will deliver it into the hand of the king. They are not speaking by a false god. They are representing Jehovah. They are saying, the words of Jehovah are this. Go up, for the Lord will deliver it into the hand of the king. Now God has not spoken that word. But they came out, they, they spoke it. Now look at verse 6 here. I want you to, to see the wording. It's real important. Then the king of Israel gathered the prophets together. Now the prophets is plural. It's multiple. About 400 men. 400. And said to them, Shall I go against Ramoth Gilead to fight or shall I refrain? So they said. That's the 400. The 400 prophets all say the same thing. And Jehoshaphat said, Is there not still a prophet of the Lord here that we may inquire of him? So the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, There is still one man. Now see, Jehoshaphat sees something's not right with these guys. They're representing the Lord, but they're not speaking the things of the Lord. There is still one man, Micaiah, the son of Imlah, but by whom we may inquire of the Lord. But I hate him because he does not prophesy good concerning me, but evil. And Jehoshaphat said, let not the king say such things. So he says things that are not popular. He says things of the Lord that have words that are hard to hear. And Ahab doesn't want to hear them. Because Ahab is not a man who's following after God. He wants people that say, the Lord is blessing your efforts. The Lord loves the things that you're doing. And God's saying, I'm not saying that at all. Micaiah, speak for me. So they had how many on the false prophet side? 400. How many on the good prophet side? One. Now Ahab wanted to be puffed up. He wanted people to come and to speak words that puffed him up, made him feel good about himself, give us words that we want to hear. Yeah, go to war. Go in there and, and defeat them. The true words of Micaiah brought about disdain while the false words of the others acceptance. Then the king of Israel called an officer and said, Bring Micaiah the son of Imlah quickly. 
the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, having put on their robes, sat each on his throne at a threshing floor at the entrance of the gate of Samaria, and all the prophets prophesied before them. So all 400 are still going at it. Now Zedekiah, the son of Chanana, had made horns of iron for himself, and he said, Thus says the Lord, With these you shall gore the Syrians until they are destroyed. So he's got props, as we've said before. He seems to be the spokesman of the 400, at least the most prominent there. And all the prophets prophesied, saying, So go up to Ramoth Gilead and prosper, for the Lord will deliver it into the king's hand. So all 400 are still speaking the same way. Then the messenger who had gone to call Micaiah spoke to him, saying, Now listen, the words of the prophets with one accord encourage the king. Please let your word be like the word of one of them and speak encouragement. And Micah said, As the Lord lives, whatever the Lord says to me, that I will speak. We got pressure to speak in agreement with the spirit behind the false prophets. This is what happens with people who don't align themselves with what false prophets are saying. The spirits behind them will put pressure on through the people that will yield to them. And this person who went to get them said, Now look, this is what's being said. I want you to know. And you should say things right along this line. So that he can come on in and he could be 401. Then he came to the king and the king said to him, Micaiah, shall we go to war against Ramoth Gilead or shall we refrain? And he answered him, Go and prosper for the Lord will deliver it into the hand of the king. Now his word is a little bit different from the other ones. They said, go up to Ramoth Gilead and prosper, for the Lord will deliver into the hands of the king. His is close, but it's not quite there. And he's probably also saying it in a very sarcastic way. Because even Ahab can pick up that he's not being sincere. So the king said to him, how many times shall I make you swear that you tell me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? I don't think he would because he doesn't want to hear the words of the Lord and he doesn't like them. Verse 17. Then he said, I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains as sheep that have no shepherd. And the Lord said, These have no master. Let each return to his house in peace. And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, Did I not tell you that he would not prophesy good concerning me but evil? Then Micaiah said, Therefore hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne. He's already seen this. He saw this before he came to the meeting. The Lord showed this to him. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the host of heaven standing by on his right hand and on his left. And the Lord said, Who will persuade Ahab to go up that he may fall at Ramoth Gilead? Now think about this. What words has the Lord spoken about Ahab? About the house of Ahab? Destruction. You will die. You will die. Your wife will die. These are words that have been prophesied. Not go up and prosper, but words like this. So this falls in line with the other words that he has spoken. Then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord and said, I will persuade him. And the Lord said to him, in what way? So he said, I will go out and be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. And the Lord said, you shall persuade him and also prevail. Go out and do so. Therefore, look, the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of all these prophets of yours. And the Lord has declared disaster against you. So the Lord is saying, I want him to go to Ramoth Gilead because here he will die. He will die in battle and the dogs will lick up his blood just as I have uh, prophesied. The true word of the Lord declares his will and plan, not just the outcome. That's one thing about the word of the Lord. That is, a true word of the Lord will declare his will and plan, not just the outcome. When you saw the false word, it declared the outcome. Go and prosper. But here's the true word. The true word, this is the, this is God's plan. This is His will. And here is the outcome. And you will see this in the words that God speaks when He speaks to His people through His prophet, especially when it's a hard word. He speaks, this is my plan. This is my will. And this will be the outcome. Because He wants them to get to know who He is. He wants them to know when He's angry. He wants them to know when He's pleased. He wants them to know when He wants to bless them. And He wants them to know when He cannot. And so this is what Micaiah does. It is in this declaration that we can determine the truthfulness. You compare it to what, what it reveals about what we know of God. When we hear this pattern, when we hear a prophet come out and declare, 
this is the will, this is the plan, this is the outcome. I can then take that. All right, they're saying this is the will of God. How does that compare to what I know is in the Word of God or what God has spoken before? This is the plan. How does that compare to how God makes plans, to what God has said about this plan before? This is the outcome. All right, now I got the will and the plan. Can I trust this outcome? Let's see if we have something to compare it to. Now Zedekiah, the son of Chenanah, went near and struck Micaiah on the cheek and said, Which way did the Spirit from the Lord go from me to speak to you? See, he thinks he is still speaking from the Spirit of the Lord. False prophets, as we said, are different from prophets of false gods in that they believe they are declaring God's voice. And Micaiah said, Indeed, you shall see on that day when you go into an inner chamber to hide. Why would he hide? Because he's ashamed of the word that he spoke. So the king of Israel said, Take Micaiah and return him to Ammon, the governor of the city, and to Joash, the king's son, and say, Thus says the king, Put this fellow in prison and feed him with bread of affliction and water of affliction until I come in peace. And I love verse 28. But Micaiah said, If you ever return in peace, the Lord has not spoken by me. And he said, Take heed, all you people. True prophets know they can stand on the truth contained in the word they gave. That's a true prophet. I know I can stand on this because of how I've experienced God, how I experienced this word, what he showed me about this word. I know beyond any shadow of a doubt what God has shown me, this is what's coming about. And they will speak it. They will stand on it. He knows I don't have to go run and hide. In this day, we will be called on to discern the true word from the false word. The true prophet from the false. And just as we need to determine the true teacher from the false and false truth from real. If we cannot, it will be a great deterrent to our spiritual health, well-being, and growth. But we can do it. We have a day here where there are lots of prophets. Lots of people who want to stand up and say that they are prophets. And as I told you before, I get appalled at how many words they get from God a week. And so many of them sound similar to the ones they already gave. My God doesn't give similar words that frequently. He may repeat some things, but there's some space and some time in between. But the way it goes right now, if people don't have a fresh word to bring from God, then people begin to tune them out. And if people begin to tune them out, they become less popular. And then uh, their, their pocketbooks are affected things become damaged that they want to be puffed up. And so they give in and they yield. But see, we know from the Word. The more of the Word of God that we learn, the more real truth we learn from the Word of God. Don't just take surface truth. The more we dig into the Word of God and we learn, oh, this is what this is really teaching. Oh, look, you see how this compares to this Scripture and this Scripture over here? And oh, this all ties together. The more I learn that, the more I see how all that comes about, the more of that truth that gets in on me, then false prophets will not hold a candle. And we will see the fulfillment of this prophecy even in our day. That's prophesied for Israel Day, but it can come about in our day because we will not tolerate false prophets. We won't give them our ear. We won't lend them any attention at all. Nope, nope, that's, that's not what my God speaks. My God, in the words, will reveal His will will reveal his plan and the outcome. And then I can take the will and the plan and compare it to what I know about my God and determine whether that is a word from God or not. The words that Jeremiah brought declaring his will and his plan and the outcome of destruction would go right along with the prophets that had come before that had said, if you do not repent... Destruction will come. You will not stand before your enemies. They come in line with the words that Moses had spoke to him and written down in their law. That as long as you serve the Lord your God and do not serve the idols of the land, as long as you serve the Lord your God with all your heart, I will keep these things from you. But if you do not, 
And if you serve the gods of this land, and he gave them the five stages of judgment that would come. And the prophets who came up, Jeremiah being one of them, and uh, so many others, they gave the destruction of Israel in line with what Moses taught in his word. So you can compare it and you can see it. And I can say, though there are contrary people to what Jeremiah spoke, though there are contrary words to what Isaiah spoke, that there are contrary words to what Micaiah spoke, the word of the Lord that is written and the word of the Lord that has been spoken comes in line with this. And I may not want to hear that destruction is coming. But we have forsaken the Lord. We have brought in false worship. And this is what's going to come about. They could have done that in those days. But they did not. And so they couldn't tell the false from the true. Now we have prophets today who want to stand up and they want to say some things about what God's intentions are. And God will bless this and God will do this. And But listen to them. Are they giving you the will of God? Are they giving you the plan of God? And how does that compare to what we know of the plan of God in the Word? When we compare those things, we can say, no, you know what? That's not lining up with what I know about my God. This is a day we will be called upon to discern the true Word from the false Word. The true prophet from the false. Just as we need to determine the true teacher from the false teacher. And from the real truth, from the false truth. Because if we can do this, instead of being a great deterrent to our spiritual growth, if we can discern these things, if we can determine these things, it will be a great help to our spiritual health, our spiritual well-being, and our spiritual growth. And Father, I thank you for your word. You have not left us alone here to try and figure out on our own what we feel like is the Word of God. Father, we can know. Because in your Word, you have revealed your will. You have revealed your plan. And we also know your purpose. If we just take what people say as being words of God and compare them to what we know, what your word has taught us, what has been spoken before, we can know this is a true word of God, this is a false word. And we will not be deceived, we will not be led astray. Thank you for it, in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.